0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Back in the days of the Soviet Union, there was a very famous book. I'm not talking about a political tract by Marx or Lenin, but a cookbook written by scientists from the Institute of Nutrition. Its official title was The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food, but it had such an influence that it was known among Russians simply as The Book. The book contained over a thousand recipes, plenty using everyday staples like cabbage and potatoes, but others requiring ingredients such as caviar, crab and pineapples, which were pretty hard to find in the midst of Soviet-era food shortages. Anna Hazeva grew up in Moscow. In fact, she lived in Russia until just six months ago, when she fled with her family to Australia. Anna is a food writer, and a few years ago, she decided to cook her way through the classic Soviet cookbook with plenty of help from her beloved grandmother, Babushka Lena. Hi, Anna. Hi, Sarah. How much was your grandmother, Yelena, part of your day-to-day life when you were growing up? She was a
0: a huge part of my everyday life because I grew up... Um, In Moscow, you know, with uh, my mom, who was always working because she was a single mom. And uh, my grandmother would come over every day and bring food and, you know, entertain us and hang out, take us for walks and all of that. You know, she was looking after her own mother who lived to be almost 105. So, you know, she was caring for her mom and coming over to feed us.
1: So she'd bring food that she'd cook in her own apartment to you. How would she carry it across Moscow?
0: Um, Yeah, it was actually quite an ordeal. She had to walk for 10, 15 minutes, take the bus, take one stop on the metro, then take another bus, then walk for probably half an hour. And because it was this new part of Moscow, it was newly built and... My parents were able to get an apartment there, but there was no metro. There was no asphalt on the streets. It was just this <laughs> brand new area, and she would reuse every container of sour cream, uh, butter, everything, and and stuff it with her food with <laughs> lovely, you know, meat or fish sauce with salads, with sauerkraut, with borscht. And she would then carry it on her shoulder she would she had a strategy she she would use two bags and put one on each shoulder and she'd make sure there was equal weight in both bags and and that was her strategy. She said it doesn't feel that heavy
1: when you have something on each shoulder, and it's more or less the same. And when she arrived in your apartment, would you help her unwrap these, you know, sour cream tins and and empty bottles full of new food?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. And she, you know, she'd bring bouillon in a plastic bottle, and then she'd also bring pâté. She often made liver pâté. And I would grab the bags of her, and even, you know, all the way to my 30s, even two years ago, I would meet her by the lift. Grab the bags, take them to the kitchen, go, hmm, what do we have here? You know, and I'd open it and I'd get, oh, pate. Oh, bouillon chick. Or, you know, salad.
1: We should all have such a grandmother, Anna. Would she stay and eat with you or was she literally like a Meals on Wheels service and then head back home?
0: (laughs) When her mom was alive, she wouldn't stay very long, especially towards the end when she needed more and more care. So she would come sort of feed us. And go quite quickly because she would say, my child requires my attention. That was her mother. That was her mother, who was who was then like 100. <laughs> but when my great-grandmother died, yeah. she would come and stay a bit longer and she would have a coffee and she would, you know, eat a little bit. <laughs> but she was a very gracious guest. She brought her own slippers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She never overstayed. You know, she she didn't eat too much and... She kind of always preferred her own food as well. So when I cooked, like, she would eat it, but she always just preferred her own cooking.
1: Where had your grandma lived as a young girl in Moscow? What was her house like? So she was born in a what's called a communal
0: apartment in Moscow, in central Moscow. Uh, now it's this very prestigious area, uh, you know, because it's right in the centre, and it used to belong to someone wealthy before the revolution. It was a person owned this two-story house. And after the revolution, of course, that person either left Russia, fled Russia or was maybe killed or the apartment was taken away from the family. And um, a bunch of other people got rooms there.
1: And how would they divvy up who who got which room?
0: Well, for my great-grandmother, she managed to get a room elsewhere first and then her friend had the room that they ended up in and they swapped so there was a, a lot of, <laughs> people relied heavily on friends and family and connections so you knew someone who wanted to exchange their room and then you were looking to exchange and you would swap and maybe you would sort of pay each other a little bit or you know one pays the other I mean, you couldn't own anything because there was no private property, but that you lived there.
1: And what kind of amenities were in the flat where your your grandma was as a young girl? Was there running water, indoor plumbing, all of that?
0: Um, There was running water. There was one bathroom and
1: one kitchen for everyone. How many people would have shared that?
0: I think it was about five families.
1: Five families? Yeah,
0: yeah, at least. queuing to use the bathroom queuing to use the kitchen. No, a lot of communal apartments had, like, two or three stovetops, you know, or two or three sinks, and the fridge would be divided. She didn't have a fridge where they were living. Uh, They didn't have a fridge. They would just buy very small quantities of everything, and they would use – they would take, like, a basin or um, a bowl, fill it with cold water, and then take a piece of cloth – and dip the ends in the water and cover the thing with it. And, I mean, I guess they'd wet it first, then cover the thing with it and leave the ends in the water, and it would keep things cold. And I used the same method during the pandemic, during lockdowns in Moscow, because our fridge broke down in the middle of lockdown. And... While we were living without the fridge, I
1: used the her Soviet method. hack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was born in, in nineteen thirty two. So as a young girl in the thirties, is this a time that food was pretty scarce in in yeah. Moscow?
0: Yes, very much so. Very, very much so. There was very little food around. I mean the early thirties is the infamous famine, you know, where millions of people died, primarily in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. But also in Central Russia, I mean, Moscow was less affected. Moscow always had more than everyone else. Everything would be centralized; it would be brought to Moscow, and then like people would travel to Moscow to to buy their groceries.
1: Tell me the story of your great grandmother getting your grandmother an orange.
0: <laughs> yeah, so my great grandmother, who was raised in a very religious. Jewish family in Kiev and a and a wealthy family, which is why they were allowed to live in Kiev despite the pale of settlement. Now most Jews couldn't live in big cities. Um, so they were living in Kiev and they had beautiful crockery and cutlery and all the things and they were observing all the holidays. And when the revolution happened, of course, they weren't able to observe Judaism anymore. And my great grandmother's parents and three siblings left the Soviet Union for Palestine and my great-grandmother came to Moscow and she brought some of the things from her home with her uh, including some silver spoons which she then in the 30s when my grandmother was little maybe she was four or five so about my son's age she exchanged a few of those silver spoons for one orange for
1: her daughter Does your grandmother, did she remember that orange, remember its taste?
0: I asked her, I said, was it a good orange? (laughs) I really hope so. (laughs) She said, "Mm, I I guess so. I mean, she didn't really remember the flavour. And, you know, and I couldn't understand at first when she told me that, sorry, I was in my mid-20s. I was going, how can you exchange silver spoons for one orange? You know, how is that even possible? And I was thinking, we could have those spoons now, you know, it would be this heirloom. And then I realized, you know, that my great-grandmother grew up. She had a normal childhood, even though anti-Semitism was really bad. They always lived in fear of pogroms. But she did have somewhat of a normal childhood, you know, enough food, her parents with her, her siblings, you know, they celebrated all the holidays, so they had these traditions to lean on. And then when she was bringing up her daughter... There was very little food around. They were living in this room in the communal apartment, and she was probably looking at it, going, "Oh my God, my daughter can't have any kind of a normal childhood." And so, for her to go, you know, here are these silver spoons. What am I going to do with them now in this communal apartment in the in one room? It's not like I can throw a big dinner or anything. And here's an orange that could bring joy to my daughter, and things aren't as important as food at the end of the day. You know, when you don't have enough food, you're going to exchange whatever you have to get enough food. So it was probably a no-brainer for her to then exchange the silver spoons for that orange. And I understand that now, but it took me some time.
1: In, In June 1941, Hitler launched his invasion of the Soviet Union, and the Germans ended up getting really very close to Moscow. What happened to your grandmother's family during the years of the war?
0: So um, my family was very much affected by the war, just like every family in the Soviet Union was. You won't find a single family where someone wasn't killed or someone wasn't impacted majorly by this war. And for my family... My great-grandfather joined the war. Um, He was exempt, actually, from going to fight because he worked at this factory that was producing military equipment. Uh, But he volunteered, and a lot of the people that he worked with volunteered. And uh, now at that factory, there's a a plaque, memorial plaque with the names. And I remember going to see that plaque with my mom and grandmother, and there were maybe 100 names on it. And mom said, you know, so there's about a thousand people maybe who went from that factory to volunteer. And I said, why are there only a hundred names? She said, that's a good question. You know, my great grandmother fought to have his name put on there. But I guess if you didn't fight for it, you, you know, you would be forgotten. It's a very Soviet thing. Human life was not greatly valued.
1: What happened to him after he enlisted?
0: So he enlisted, yeah, he in july i think and official the official record says that he is a missing person but he most likely was killed in october 41 so very soon after he joined
1: and where were your where was your grandmother and her mother living during that so
0: they left i think in august or september 1941 they were evacuated to to the urals most people were leaving moscow not everyone but most people were leaving moscow um and they went in this cattle train to the urals because um Muncha, my great grandmother uh, her sister was already in the urals somewhere and you know she said come and we can live here together so they took the train
1: what food did they bring with them <laughs> from the apartment
0: so my great grandmother fried up some meat which was actually Kind of hard to find. So I guess she was lucky that she had some meat. She fried up some meat in this frying pan. And of course, this was long before any kind of packaging or Tupperware. So she put a lid on that frying pan. And I guess she would have packed some bread or whatever else she had and took it with her and took it on that trip because they didn't have much money. Even if there was food to buy, along the way you could easily not have anything to buy at all, especially you're riding in a cattle train. And um, we still have the lid from that (laughs) frying pan. And I only heard the story recently, you know, like she was already sick, my grandmother, and she was using the lid. And I think we were going through the things trying to sort of throw out what we didn't need. And she's like, but don't throw out this lid because that's the story. And I was
1: like, wow, why am I only learning this now? (laughs) So she and her mother ended up in this little village in the Urals. What was her life? Like there in the in the wartime, you know, she referred
0: to it a lot to that time when they were, you know, she called it in evacuation or She talks about it all the time, and I think it was a hugely impactful time for her. I think her personality was largely impacted by living through the war because she always had this approach, like you must help, and it was kind of black and white, you know. If you're helping, you're a good person. If you're not helping, you're a bad person. Like, she didn't really see the nuance of maybe enabling, you know, maybe you're not always helping, maybe sometimes you don't necessarily need to help. And I felt that when the war started in Ukraine, I did feel the world becoming or feeling more black and white. And I went, ah, oh, okay, now I understand. I understand how, why she was feeling that way, because it did feel like you either do the right thing or you're a bad person Mm -hmm. when such drastic things happen. So I think the war really sort of molded her personality. And when they were living in that little village, you know, they had a little backyard, so they grew their own potatoes. They had, like, peas growing. Um, Everyone was, was allocated a little plot of land where they could grow something. Because if you didn't have that, you would likely starve. And my great grandmother would plant the potatoes. You know this and I'm just trying to picture like she grew up in this Jewish family, observing all the Pesach and, and Hanukkah and all of that in this wealthy key family, suddenly <laughs> living in a village growing potatoes. Then when the potatoes grew, she would um take them to a nearby town, sell them and With the prophet, she would buy some onions, some garlic, some lard, very Jewish. Uh, And she would buy one chocolate, little chocolate, and bring it back to my grandmother. And my grandmother would say, where's yours? No, why is there only one? And she would say, oh, I ate mine on the way. And my grandmother would cut hers up into seven little pieces and eat it throughout the week. And even, like, she was 88 when she was telling me, and I was such a fool to believe her that she'd eaten hers. Like, it was still eating at her
1: that she didn't share with her (laughs) mum. So she'd survived, they'd survived the war, but of course her father had been killed, and then the war ends. Did they return to to that same apartment, the communal apartment in Moscow they'd been in?
0: Yes, luckily my... Grandmother and great-grandmother were able to return to Moscow and back to their apartment, where they lived until my grandmother was 29.
1: And what happened then?
0: And then Khrushchev started building these brand-new apartment blocks where the Soviet person could enjoy the luxury of having their own apartment. And there were five-story buildings with no lifts. It was very small apartments, tiny kitchens, like three to five square meters, you know, for the kitchen, and um, depending on how many people were in your family, you would then allocate a certain amount of space. So my grandmother was married by then. So the three of them, great-grandmother, grandmother, grandmother, and my grandfather, moved into this two-room apartment. We don't say two-bedroom because it literally has two rooms, a kitchen and a bathroom. It doesn't have a living room. And then my mum was born and my mum my mom and my grandmother, I guess, or great-grandmother were in
1: one room and the other two were in the other room. So Everyone was in everyone else's business all the time. Absolutely. And one imagine. of the rooms
0: is tiny as well.
1: Did it feel like a, a step up, though, for your grandma at the time, do you think, to have their own apartment rather than that communal space?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, she said it felt amazing. To have your own place, to have gas in the apartment. And yeah, it was a wonderful thing. And even though it wasn't in the center, in fact, not really close to the center, but still to have that freedom of having your own place. And it's in an area right by the river and uh, lots of greenery around. So it sort of had that free sort of feel to it. And it was funny because she said, they were deciding, they had some money, and they were deciding whether to buy some furniture for the apartment or buy a motorboat to go and take trips on the river. And they decided to get the motorboat. <laughs> <laughs> so they would go on, on these trips you know, along the river.
1: Sit on the floor at home, but have, have the motorboat. <laughs> So this is the the house where your grandma began her married life and, I guess, started cooking for her own family. Tell me about this book that helped you understand this era of Soviet cooking that your grandma had grown up in.
0: Yeah, so the book is called The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food. It's It's a big book, you know, and it's quite beautiful and it has a lot of photos and sort of beautiful imagery of the feasts and uh, you know lots of beautiful fruit and champagne and everything which was very far from the reality my grandmother had that book um she must have been giving it given it for their wedding or it was often a wedding gift because it was quite expensive actually and uh, a lot of people had it but Still not everyone, you know, because there was about 8 million copies printed, which for the population of the Soviet Union was actually not that much. But still everyone knew it, and a lot of people did have it, especially in Moscow. She had used it. There were some recipes that she actually took on, and they became part of her repertoire. But there were other recipes that she'd never heard of. And when I started that project of cooking through the cookbook... I, um, I hadn't known much about it, to be honest. Like, it was at her place, you know, it was on the shelf. She had a lot of books, a lot of books.
1: In that little two-room apartment.
0: Little, she had a lot of everything. Every time someone in the family died, they would merge the libraries, and everyone had a lot of books. So her tiny apartment was stacked with
1: books. And it's a very common thing from
0: Moscow actually.
1: So this huge book of recipes was it mainly Russian classic Russian dishes or or where did they come from the the mm. recipes?
0: So the recipes in the book were not Russian they were Soviet and that was the idea of the book to create and promote this new cuisine this Soviet cuisine.
1: So what's the difference?
0: Uh, Well, the difference is in Russia before the revolution, there were sort of two different cuisines, really, at least two. Uh, One that was in the villages, you know, which was kind of the traditional Russian fare of a lot of um, preserved foods, pickled things, a lot of rye, dairy, fish, slow-cooked in in this clay oven called pech, and quite monotonous, but very seasonal and very healthy. And then there was the food of big cities. There was food that sort of average city people could afford. And then there was the luxurious city food. And in the Soviet Union, you know, they were saying we're creating a new, not just a new country, we're creating a new person. And that new person has to eat new food. We can't have bourgeois food as part of our Soviet diet. We can't have that old, inefficient Russian food from the village. You know, it takes too long to prepare. You can't really cook it if you're working at the factory all day, every day. And also women were starting to work. And, and that was a huge impact as well. Women were no longer at home all the time, available to cook. But basically, women were still doing all the cooking,
1: was it also a way to to bring together in theory at least all the different ethnic groups that made up this new soviet republic so food from georgia and food from ukraine and and the rest
0: yes absolutely absolutely so a lot of them were recipes from the soviet republics a lot of georgian recipes some armenian recipes some uzbek recipes all these other recipes to make the people, I guess, in the New Republics feel like they're part of the Soviet Union. But they were Sovietized. You know, they were far from their original versions. Far fewer spices. You know, they were much simpler versions of those dishes because, like, Georgian food is gorgeous. It has so many flavors and spices, and the, the versions in the book are not that. And then there were all these canned... Pre-packaged things that you know, were supposed to make your life easier—that Mikayan, the food minister, actually got from the US.
1: Okay, really. And and then some of the the sort of sumptuous color photos that I've seen from the book have champagne and lobsters and, and melons, which, I mean, was that meant to be something that Soviet people looked at and dreamt of, or was it really imagined that they could go to their local um, collectivist store and, and pick up items like that? Well,
0: my grandmother said, you know, it's an advertisement. It's, it's not even meant to be taken seriously. You know, it's part cookbook, part propaganda tool. And it was also during a time when Stalin decided to Make life quote unquote more joyful
1: style and making life more joyful is it as you are encouraging people
0: right at the same time of the big terror, so in you could be drinking your lovely Soviet champagne and then someone would knock on the door and arrest your father you know um this is just this brutal Soviet reality like it it feels like a bad movie and Yeah, and and a lot of the recipes were unrealistic and my grandmother would make fun of them or she would say, oh, my God, you know, the Soviet BS again. (laughs) Yeah, she was not fond of the regime at all. In
1: 2014, an American editor living in Moscow commissioned you to write about your experience of cooking your way through this Soviet food Bible. What did your babushka, Lena, think about this idea?
0: Well, she was... She was quite a sarcastic kind of uh, person. So she would be like, okay, then, <laughs> all right, you know. <laughs> I think she was flattered, to be honest, that she was kind of the center of the stories. And I wrote that for two years, and by the end she was tired, and she said, okay, enough. I've had enough. Like, no more questions <laughs> about cabbage and potatoes, and and, and and where did you eat that, and when did you first try that, you know, that that's it. Um, but I think she enjoyed it as well. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app, this is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast to find out more, just head to abc.net.au/slash conversations.
1: And now, what was the first recipe you cooked from the book?
0: The first one was a breakfast, the Soviet Breakfast of Champions, it's called. <laughs> And I was, I was quite surprised, to be honest, by that breakfast because it was supposed to be a piece of meat and, and some bread and some eggs and some tea or coffee. And I was thinking, how are you supposed to get a steak in the Soviet Union? Like, you couldn't find it. You had to be friends with a butcher. You had to pay a lot of money. It was certainly not something that you would do for breakfast. There's no way. It was quite interesting. And I asked my grandmother like, what did you actually eat? And she said, you know, we often made semolina porridge because my grandfather, her husband, loved it, you know, with some sweet jam and some tea and, like, a you know, a sandwich, an open sandwich, butterbrot. So right, you know, right there and then from the very first recipe, it became very apparent to me that the book is full of, put it this way.
1: (laughs) Which recipe took the longest?
0: Um, Well, the sauerkraut took a while, obviously, because it needs about three days to ferment. And when I made, it was my first time making sauerkraut, and um, I was following the book's instructions, and my grandmother said, look, don't follow the instructions in the book. I'll tell you how to make it. Just follow my instructions. And I said, no, it's an experiment. The whole project is for me to see whether the book has stood the test of time. Will the recipes work? I said, I have to make it from the book. She was like, <laughs> okay, okay then, no, no, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I failed miserably and she was laughing. She was like, oh my God, this is hilarious.
1: Well, what secrets did your grandma's recipe for sauerkraut have that weren't in this classic book?
0: To be honest, her recipe is pretty much a straightforward kind of classic sauerkraut recipe, but the book's recipe was very strange and written very vaguely. Most of the recipes are very vague in the book, you know, like cook in the hot oven until ready. (laughs) Thanks for that, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And, you know, it just didn't specify what sort of a bowl you should use, how much weight you should put on top, how to air it. It didn't have any of those instructions, and... I, I think it was a pure experiment in the sense that I hadn't, make it, I hadn't made it before, so I didn't know how to make it, and I was just trying to follow the instructions in the book. And it was a total failure. And then my grandmother taught me how to make her sauerkraut, which I now make, and it's, it turns out well.
1: As you were talking to your grandma about her memories of food during the the time of the, the USSR, it, it became clear that food often had sort of symbolic meaning or, or code words, or used as code words almost. What about buckwheat? How did that become a kind of code?
0: Yeah, that's really funny, you know, because um, obviously in the Soviet Union there were a lot of forbidden books, a lot of literature that wasn't allowed, but people still read it and people reprinted it at home. It was called Samizdat, a self-published book and people would receive this copy, you know, that somebody made by themselves, just retyped on the typewriter and people would give it to each other. And you would, you never had a lot of time to read it because there was a big line of people waiting to read that forbidden book. And uh, you would get the book, say in the evening, and you had to give it back the following day and you'd spend the whole night reading it. And uh, you couldn't say on the phone. I have Solzhenitsyn or someone for you. The code that my grandmother told me about was, I've eaten the buckwheat and now I'm ready to give it to you.
1: (laughs) What about if you rose up in the Communist Party? How was that described through food?
0: Well, rising up in general, I guess all jobs were state jobs. And my grandmother said that When you got a job that's higher up, that's um, more prestigious, you know, that has more money, it would be described closer to kielbasa, which is salami (laughs) or bologna with sort of the same word. Because kielbasa was such a desirable thing, it it was a symbol of wealth and success. And, you know, if you get closer to it... It means life's getting better.
1: You get close to the sausage.
0: Close to the sausage, yes.
1: <laughs> the USSR had collapsed by the time you were growing up. Was that also a time when new Western foods were coming? Like, what do you remember popping up in supermarkets or in your kitchen?
0: Yes. So I was born in 1986. Um, so I don't remember the Soviet period really, but I do remember the 90s where we thought everything American was wonderful we longed for snickers bars no snickers bars were kind of a currency amongst us kids you know you, want, you could swap something for a snickers bar or if you really wanted to brag you could say oh know my parents on the weekend took me to the shop and bought me two snickers bars <laughs> it was it was this incredible thing because we grew up eating buckwheat for breakfast are you using buckwheat juice? as a
1: metaphor there Anna or you mean actual buckwheat? <laughs>
0: actual actual buckwheat. We were we were not nearly as uh, as into books as our parents and grandparents had.
1: So your grandma had been in this apartment that she moved into at 29 or so and and lived there her whole life. As she was getting older was that Proving, you know, more difficult. You said it was five levels and and no lift. How was she managing that in in her eighties?
0: Well, her mum, when she she fell when she was well into her nineties and broke her femur, so she was confined to the apartment for the last probably twelve or thirteen years of her life because there was no lift and she couldn't get out. And for my grandmother, it actually kept her very fit for a long time, because she would she would walk to the supermarket. She would have her both shoulders, you know, with enough food, in, enough weight on each shoulder. And she would actually choose the longest route to walk to the supermarket to get her walk in. And then she'd come back and she would walk up the five flights of stairs, which is quite a lot, you know, when she... Got delivery. Sometimes a young guy would bring a delivery and would be all out of breath by the time he knocked on the door, and she'd be going. Ha, ha, ha. I'm in my 80s. I do this every day. <laughs> but then when she got sick, um, she turned 88 and she was totally fine. And then she was diagnosed with kidney failure. And then she, and she was in hospital to try and start the dialysis. She got COVID. And then she fell in the hospital when she had COVID and she broke her femur. So she had her kidney issue, a broken femur, recovering from COVID, and um, she had to go for dialysis three days a week. And basically my my brother would come over, carry her down the five flights of stairs. By then she was very light, uh, but still, still a lot to carry. And then he would take her for dialysis, mom and me would pick her up, and then he would carry her up the five flights of stairs. You know, and we when we said to her, why don't you swap apartments with my brother? You know, he has a lift. And she didn't want to, you know, that was home to her. She didn't like to sleep anywhere else. She wanted to be in her apartment where every centimeter is how she likes it. It didn't make much sense to me, the way that the apartment was (laughs) organised. But to her, it was her home. It was where she wanted to be.
1: When was the last time you saw her before she passed away?
0: Well, the last time I saw her was at her apartment, actually. It was basically COVID-related complications that ended up killing her. But it was beautiful in the sense that, you know, we were all there together. And actually, kind of by accident, because... Mom had been looking after her. I would come over as well a lot. My brother would come over, but I never stayed the night because my son was three at the time. And this this particular night, my mom called me and she said, look, I'm so tired. I'm not sleeping well because I'm always keeping my ear out to hear if, if, if granny needs any help. And she said, would you mind sleeping the night? And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, so I went to stay overnight. My brother was there too because we were going to take her for dialysis in the morning. So we were there and then we noticed that her breathing wasn't very good and so we rang an ambulance and we called my mom, and she said, I'm going to come over. And to me it didn't feel like it was anything too serious, so I said, maybe you don't need to come. And mom's like, no, I'm going to come over. And so we were all there together, which was kind of an amazing thing.
1: What did you cook to honour your babushka, Lena, at, at the wake?
0: Well, I made her famous pirashki, which are little stuffed pies with either cabbage or meat or egg and onion inside. And it was something that she always made for our birthdays, for every celebration. And, you know, it's a labor of love. It, it requires a lot of effort. You know, it's the yeast, the dough, and then you have to make every single pirajok by hand. And it, it takes a lot of time, especially, like I said, her kitchen was so small. And I thought, you know, she made it for me so many times, I'll make it for her wig. And luckily they turned out really nicely. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it was a really
1: beautiful thing. Ian. So Anna, describe for me what life was like for you this time a year ago. You, you were in Moscow you have your husband, an Australian husband, your young son, your book about this Soviet cookbook had come out. What was, what was life feeling like?
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was this time last year was the printed copies, sort of the hardcover copies of the book arrived. It was actually quite amazing because I ordered them maybe in August and I thought they would arrive early September. But they weren't coming, and I was like, when are they going to come? And I was trying to chase it up with the delivery company, where are the books? And they were saying, yeah, 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 we're going to bring them, we're going to bring them. I was like, why are they so late? And in the end, on the 20th, was my f- grandmother's first birthday after she died. My mom came over, and we were having lunch with my mom and my son, and suddenly there was a knock on the door, and uh, it was the books. The books <laughs> arrived on her birthday as we sort of sat down <laughs> to lunch, and it felt kind of incredible, like, this is kind of her, you know, joining us on on, on the first birthday that she's not around. Um, and to be honest, just before the war started, it felt like life was sort of getting back to some sort of normal because before that it was COVID, then it was my grandmother died it was a very hard period for me emotionally. And um, finally I felt like around sort of February... Okay, COVID seems to be easing off. It's been almost a year since Babushka died. I'm kind of starting to feel more or less normal. Um, And we were about to move into our new apartment that we had bought in October and we were renovating. And I was saying, I'm moving there in April. I'm definitely moving in April. I don't care, even if it's not completely finished, you know, I'm moving because (laughs) I'd spent so long renovating it. And we were living at my grandmother's apartment in that little place which for us you know when we moved there for my husband myself our son and our dog it was it felt way too small and we were really struggling living there
1: so you were telling yourself by april i'm going to be in our new apartment what happened instead
0: so instead uh putin started the war on ukraine on the 24th of february which we should have seen coming i guess but we didn't and I mean we we didn't think he would actually do it. So when he did it, you know I went to to a protest and I um, you know, sort of I was posting stuff on social media against it and spoke to some overseas media about it as well from Moscow and uh, and then they started introducing these laws that if you've supported Ukraine in any sense, you can be charged with fifteen years, you can get fifteen years in jail or if you spread fake news, which basically is sharing anything that's happening. It's like 20 years or something. And um, maybe 10 days after the war started, we pulled the plug and left because it felt like they were going to close the borders. It felt like if we didn't get out now, then they would come after everyone who spoke up. And I knew I wouldn't be among the first ones. You know, I don't have a massive following uh, or profile in Russia. But still, I felt like... I had done enough to be prosecuted potentially if if things did get down to that. And so we left. It was actually exactly one year since Babushka died that I called my husband and I said, book flights for tomorrow.
1: For tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because it just, they were talking about it like on the 5th, Piskov, who is the spokesperson, Kremlin spokesperson, said, we're not going to introduce martial law on the 5th. And to me, it was like, "Oh my god is it is it his way of warning people that they're going to introduce martial law on the fifth because martial law means they can do whatever they can close the borders, they can charge people they can do whatever they want, and so I panicked, and um, I experienced the sort of fear that my grandmother had told me about. you know she was telling me, you know you have no idea what it's like to live in that fear that she experienced when she was living under Stalin." And she didn't say it sort of in a demeaning way. She was saying, I hope you never have to experience that sort of fear. And it felt like I would, of course, never experience that. Why would I experience it? You know, the Soviet Union is finished. That's it. But then when things started happening, I felt what to me felt like that level of fear for personal safety. You know, when you're at home but you feel so afraid that someone might come and knock on your door and your life, as you knew it, would be finished.
1: So very suddenly you decide to leave with your husband and and young son. Where did you go?
0: So first we went to Istanbul because I don't need a visa for Istanbul and also we were able to find flights to Istanbul.
1: Were you scared at the airport or, or crossing the border?
0: Yeah, I mean... Basically, what I did was delete everything from my phone that could be compromising, uh, all the messages with my friends, subscriptions to independent media. I unfollowed every potentially dangerous person or channel on Instagram and Telegram and Facebook and started following other things instead, not political things, more like food, even more food things or children-related channels. Because my story was going to be that I'm just a mom, you know, I'm interested in food and in, in, in my ch- my child's sort of well-being. And I, I, I don't know anything about politics. That was going to be my sort of story for when I was crossing the border. But luckily, no one asked me anything. No one checked my phone. Um, I'd heard of people's phones getting checked. but. I didn't have that, and um, we crossed the border. It was okay, but I think I I was so stressed that I left the passports in those little trays, you know, where you go through um, security control. Luckily, my husband was going after me, and he rang. He was like,
1: I have your passport. (laughs) (laughs) And so in Istanbul, what was the atmosphere like? In Istanbul, it was um,
0: kind of surreal because there were so many Russians who had gotten out in the same boat, I I was walking in the park with my son and I saw these Russian people and basically we sort of came close to each other and we'd heard each other speak Russian and and I said, are you from there as well? And they said yes and we were hugging and within a minute I was hosting a dinner uh, because it was our last night in Istanbul and we were about to leave and we had a bunch of friends there, you know, people who were leaving as well at the same time a lot of my husband's colleagues, a lot of um, my friends from various walks of life. And I said to the guys, you know, come over, have dinner with us. And so they did. And um, we had one more night booked in that Airbnb. And they had nowhere to stay because Russian cards didn't work overseas, so you couldn't book accommodation. We said stay the night at our Airbnb, you know, at least one night that we had. And, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy because... No, we got out. Um I exchanged some rubles at a crazy rate. You know, it used to be seventy rubles to a dollar and it was hundred and forty when I was buying dollars. And um when we got to Istanbul we knew that our bank cards were gonna stop working. And it was sort of gonna be any day. And I said to my husband, let's go and buy groceries at least. While we still can use our cards, let's at least buy some groceries so that we can As we're moving uh, around town, uh, you know, staying at various Airbnbs that at least we have groceries to cook. And um, so we went and bought pasta and tins of things and stuff. And then we were lugging them all over Istanbul as we moved. We moved six times in the three weeks. But we always had our pasta and our tins with us. (laughs)
1: Like your grandma with her, her two shoulder bags full of her groceries coming to you. And exactly. And you were granted a visa and your husband's Australian and your son also then has an Australian passport. What was going through your your mind, Anna, on that long plane trip from Istanbul to Sydney?
0: To be honest, when I got my visa finally in Istanbul, you know, all of my friends who were there were saying, oh, congrats, You know, it's awesome, you can finally go to Australia and sort of start getting settled somewhat. But for me, I wasn't happy uh, about it because Istanbul was still some sort of an escape from the reality. You know, it wasn't normal life in the sense that, you know, there were a lot of people around me who were going through the same thing. We were also kind of tourists still, you know, we were going out and looking at things and it had that kind of exotic flair still. Whereas going to Australia, I knew that this would be the reality hitting me. That we left home. We have a suitcase each. We have very little money. No jobs. No, you know, nowhere to live. No, no daycare for our son. We have to arrange all of that while processing the the trauma of everything that happened and reading the news. You know, every five minutes. Um, when I got to Australia, I knew that there would be nobody here going through the same thing. Nobody would really understand what I was going through because to people i guess on a day-to-day basis it would feel like you know it's okay. You 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 know you meet a person and they're doing the regular everyday things, they have a roof over their heads, you know they've got food on their plate so it would you'd think oh, they're okay. And you put on a brave face of course as well. But you know, you're not actually okay. And uh, it really helps to see other people going through the same thing.
1: How are your your mom and your brother doing back in Russia?
0: Um, I mean, They're okay. My mom has a very strong support network of many friends. And she knows history very well. She's a historian as well. She has the capacity to see the bigger picture and that, this is part of a big process that will come to an end. You know, I spoke to her recently and she said, you know, we just get to get through the next six months and then hopefully things will get better. But of course it's hard because um, as Putin started drafting people on 21st of September, so many of her friends and friends' children have left. It really feels like you're you're the last one standing, you know, when you're in Moscow so it's hard, it's hard, but at the same time she's sort of okay and
1: she's strong. Do you share her uh, faith that six months things will be different?
0: Well, it's hard, it's really hard to know. It does feel like Putin's time is coming to an end because it just it's so grotesque now that it can't possibly keep going. You know, I've been telling myself ever since I left that Every bad period comes to an end. Russia has been through a lot of very bad times, but each time it ended. So I know that this will also end eventually. Yeah, hopefully hopefully it won't be too long, but it's hard to know as well. Like It could drag and it could not get any better with the next person as well.
1: How, Anna, are you using your cooking to, to help Ukrainians suffering in the war?
0: Well, um, I've sort of partaken in the movement that was started by Olya Hercules and Alisa Timoshkina in London called Cook for Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I've done Zoom cooking classes here in Australia with Alice Zaslavsky uh, and my friend Anastasia Zolotarov. And um, I'm hosting a pre-loved cookbook sale at the end of October that I hope people will attend and buy things. And um, I might host things at home as well, like uh, a breakfast or a brunch or something like that. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to make a little bit of a difference. Mm-hmm.
1: What about cooking for you? Uh, what are the dishes that you're cooking for your, yourself and your son and your husband that lets you feel there is a way that home is, is close, even here on the other side of the world?
0: I have been cooking a lot of food from my childhood. Um, I've been making blinchiki, which are the little um, blini, but not what you would normally describe as blini here. um, They're more like crepes. Making soups, any kind of soup, uh, really, to me, sort of tastes like home, but especially borscht, which is Ukrainian, of course, and UNESCO is recently recognized that there's an intangible heritage. Um, But I grew up eating it because, well, because it's very popular in Russia, but also because my grandmother's mom came from Kiev. So she had that sort of Ukrainian recipe as well.
1: Um, So it's a food that's both comforting and political (laughs) at once.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And the pirashki, the little pies as well, I've made them two or three times. Once was for a Zoom cooking class, actually, as well, a fundraiser. And also, you know, just for us, you know, for my son and I, he loves them, I love them. And, you know, the very process of being in the kitchen, focusing on the food, trying not to read the news. Um, but it was still kind of my time, you know, especially when we didn't have our own place. You know, it was sort of a way of spending some time on my own and, And just comforting myself, really.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your story on Conversations.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Anna Hazeva was my guest today, and Anna's book, The Soviet Diet Cookbook, came out in 2020. And we'll put a link to her cooking fundraisers for Ukraine on the Conversations website and also on our Facebook page. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. When was the last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing and chucks out 15 kilos of clothes a year. So how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads, where I undress the fast fashion industry and how it's designed to make us buy until we die. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.